Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs wordmp3.com. Greg, welcome back to the podcast. Yes, thank you. I, I appreciate you doing this, despite the fact that this weekend you were attacked in your own house by a yellow jacket. <laughs> I was, yes, right before I preached on Sunday morning. Uh, I thought it was an attack of the devil. You, that means you're doing kingdom work, dude. You know, if you're getting attacked by the devil. You know, that's like the beginning of like a horror movie, where all of a sudden the yellow jackets all unite and overtake humanity. It's like... I, I was just telling my wife about what happened to you. She's like, that's so awful. It's like oppressive in your own house. I know. I woke up in the middle of dead of sleep and one, one was crawling on my face and then it, it stung me on the, on the pinky. And it, I don't remember these kind of things being so painful in the past, but boy, it's really painful. Well, I appreciate that you're, uh, you're, you're soldiering through. And here we have our first reading for Christ the King Sunday. This is the last, this is like the liturgical New Year's Eve. Uh, yeah. We have Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 6, where Jeremiah is warning about the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of the pasture. And he's pretty critical of the shepherds here, which I'm, I'm, I'm assuming here the shepherds here identified with the kings with, that have... Although sometimes priests are, uh, and false prophets are looked at as bad shepherds, but here it seems to be the the king. But the, the, here, this this role of people that are to shepherd God's people and take care of them, they've forsaken the role. So God, the shepherd, has to step in. Yeah. Well, one resource on, on uh, lectionary is lectionarypage.net. It's an Episcopal site that lays out the different tracks as well as the collect from the Book of Common Prayer, Modern Edition. And I just want to point out the collect for this day is this, Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-loved, beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And that's a great collect just for this day. On the track two, the response to Jeremiah 23, 1 to 6, is Psalm 46. Now, you probably know Psalm 46 has very famously been made into a hymn by someone in the 1500s. Do you know who that is? Psalm 46, that would be uh, Luther, right? Yes. Almighty a Fortress. fortress. Is our, is our yes. No, there's, a, there's this old adage that he was in the outhouse or something. He was composing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but it's a powerful hymn. And if you haven't heard the original sounding of it, Heinrich Schutz is a composer. You can go to our church website and listen to it. It's allsaints-church.net or .com, allsaints-church.com. And you can hear actually how it sounds 
from the more original sounding. It's very syncopated. It's very spunky. It doesn't sound like the sort of flattened out 19th century version that we are somewhat accustomed to hearing. And so that's the, I just want to point out that's a, that's the response to this, this text. In our church, we read the Old Testament lesson. We sing part of the psalm in response. Then we read the epistle lesson and sing part of the psalm in response uh, to that. And, and I encourage that practice. This, the pat, the thing I only have one thing to say about Jeremiah 23. I think it's important to see that it's in the setting. If you look at the overall book, I mean, it speaks for itself. It's pretty easy to understand what it's basically saying, but it fits in the category of the oracles against Judah that run from chapter two to 25, which is parallel to the chapters 46 to 51 that are oracles against the nations. The book is kind of set off in seven parallels, a call and narrative against Babylon, then oracles against Judah, that's 2 to 25, victorious events in Jeremiah's life, 26 to 29, and then the book of consolation is in the middle of the book, which of course includes the new covenant promise. Then it speaks of defeating events in Jeremiah's life and oracles against the nations and then narrative concerning Babylon. So it's parallel that way. And this section is the kind of second and second to last section, which is oracles against Judah paralleled with oracles against the nations. I get that, by the way, from um, Michael Michael Kelly's outline. And also you can see a guy named Murphy from the Bibliotheca Sacra um, magazine or uh, journal. That that's where I, I get that from. And it's helpful just to see that in context, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting. The end of the reading points to the prophecy of Christ the King, this this rising up a righteous branch who'll reign as king uh, and and be the true good shepherd. Do you know Ben Myers, the theologian from New Zealand? Hmm. Yeah. He's, he, he, his Twitter account is awesome. And he tweeted out, he you know, reteaching Calvin's Institutes, this long tweet about Calvin and how... Every time he teaches the Institutes, he's really impressed by many things. And one of the things in this long tweet that he says, in my view, uh, the, the, his, his focus on the Old Testament is the secret uh, of his theological genius. There is a Hebrew orientation to Calvin's thought that is quite pervasive once you notice it and almost unique in the history of Christian thought. To return to the example of Christ's threefold office, it's astounding to reflect that no previous Christian author had ever noticed that the concept of Christ, anointed one, arises from three specific Old Testament anointings, so that the Old Testament supplies the structure of Christology. So the whole prophet, priest, king, I mean, it's just astounding. He said, like, no other, Calvin's the first person to figure out that Christology is all about these Old Testament anointings that all come in the one person of Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. There's, so all of these can be viewed as shepherds, and have, and all of those are critiqued sometimes as false shepherds. Yeah. Uh, but, but Christ, the king, I just thought that's astounding that Calvin's the first person. You know, it took 1,600 or 1,500 years for somebody to really put all that together. Yeah, and we're still lo- learning. One thing that I think we've learned since the Reformation, that language is encoded in the Westminster Standards, right, of definition of prophet, priest, and king. But it really, historically, biblically, the order is priest, king, then prophet. Yeah, redemptive historically, yeah. And that and that actually is very hopeful because priestly actions are very controlled and you've got very specific directions. Kings are wise and have wisdom and have to make judgment calls. And then prophets sort of enact the will of God 
and participate in the counsel they of converse. God. They converse. Yeah, they go back right? and forth with God very often. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's a helpful way to think about it. You can you can create your own Sunday school curriculum out of that idea itself, I think. There's this other thing, too, and Rob, I just wanted to share from Robert Jensen in his systematics. He says, he talks about how basically the incarnation and the cross aren't plan uh, B, they're plan A. And he talks about how this is kind of controversial in the tradition, the Franciscans, Luther, Bard, all the, the people that have taken this view. And he says, one of the last prophets of Israel, I think he's speaking about Ezekiel, which has parallel shepherd passages. Uh, one of the last prophets of Israel spoke in God's first person, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered. I will turn my hands against the little ones. I will refine them as one refines silver. Then I will say, "These are my pe- they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. Also, such terrible prophecy must somehow become true and good in the last fulfillment, and the identity of God must somehow be told by it. And so this idea that God identifies as the shepherd sort of uh, in eternity, uh, and a shepherd that would be, that, that would, share in the problem and pain of evil to to refine his people it's just a beautiful yes. beautiful sentiment on to colossians great text here not that i always feel impious when i say it's a it's it's a good text or a bad text or sometimes i treat text with lecture like oh man it's like a bad texas hold'em hand i got like seven eight <laughs> or, 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 or three seven off suit or something but but colossians 1 11 through 20 um well it, it'll preach that's the thing i, oh, I yeah, think I that's think what we mean it, it you can you can definitely preach on it and i think that the key phrase that i would pick up on is inheritance of the saint of the saints in the light to yeah. give thanks who's enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light and has transferred us into the kingdom of his son. Well, there's so much, for, first of all, it's just jam packed with everything. <laughs> These verses are just dense. There, there, there's high nutritional content here, but that inheritance point is one that I've been hitting a few uh, months now in a row, especially regarding Galatians, went through Galatians, what does it mean that we're heirs according to the promise? What does it mean that we're included in the Abrahamic covenant, as Paul says here, as well as in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 especially, we're included in the covenants of the one promise. Well, it means that Adam is restore, God is restoring a new Adam, a new humanity in the world, and we're part of it. We, yeah. we are part of the restoration of humanity. It's like C.S. That, Lewis's that essay, I forget what he talks about, isn't the abolition of America. It talks about the inner ring and how we always want to be in the inner ring, the inside circle. We always want to yeah. be in that. Cr- and it's like the ultimate in, inner ring, like it, that we've been brought into the ultimate inner ring of God's own fellowship and, and life. Yes. We're, we're creating, uh, we're, we're being made into a new creation now and included in that. And God has his own purposes for our own inclusion in it. But that's when you see the word inheritance, don't just think going to heaven. That's not what it's talking about. <laughs> it's talking about earth, actually. It's talking about the kingdom on earth through uh, a new uh, 
a new anointed king of the world and those that are in him, right? It's Jesus is the second Adam. He's, he's the final Adam. He's the, the new anointed vice regent of the world and his glorified humanity, which we participate in is what, what this is all about. So I, I just, I'm kind of on a mission to say, when you see the word inheritance, don't think heaven. Yeah. Think now. And also the background of Colossians is probably this teaching about these spiritual powers or angels or elemental, these, these sort of spiritual forces that are, are seemingly like in the first century can be very enslaving. Like life can be seen in, as in, in terms of being pushed around by these fates and powers and spiritualities and things. And Paul's saying, no, Christ is above these things. And I think even though it, the average American might not believe, some probably do believe in a sort of spiritual warfare worldview, but many don't. But still, we feel principalities and powers, right? People feel like the, the politics have a, has a life of its own and we don't really, we can't control it. And economics and the global economy or technology feels like it's sort of run, you know, the, the tools run the culture rather than the culture shaping the tools. I feel like so much of this, even if we don't have uh, this, we don't buy into the same worldview that your average ancient Mediterranean might have. We feel these almost like Bart calls them the lordless powers. We feel these forces that hmm. seem to dehumanize us. And we feel like, you know, we're, we're kind of, our backs are against the wall. And, and, and I think Paul's message is just as relevant now that, that Christ is bigger than these things and makes us truly human. Yeah, that's right. I, I think this is a powerful word. I've become persuaded, though, Colossians, the, the background to Colossians is not some kind of Gnosticism or proto It's actually just straight up Judaism. Yeah, like the, angelology and stuff. Yeah, it's it's straight up the, the Jew quote. We call this kind of inaccurately the Judaizing controversy, but I think everybody knows what I'm talking about when I say that. That's the background. The, the Judaizers held all the things that you read about in Colossians 2 that he's he's addressing. And uh, that's an in, that's N.T. Wright's view if you look at his commentary. I think it's in the New Interpreter's Bible. Peter Lightheart argues right. the same thing about First John, too, right? That, yes. That, that, which I, I found, the first time I read that, I thought, that I've never heard anybody say this, but now when I read it that way, I'm like, wow, this is an interesting and, yeah. and persuasive thesis. That I mean, and that, it, it, it connects exactly to what I'm talking about of inheritance, because the point is, is that the controversy was who are the true people of God? And it takes the Apostle Paul to really sort that out. I mean, in a certain sense, the early apostles in Jerusalem didn't really know what was going on. You know, witness Peter in Acts chapter 10 having to be told by God three times to take and slay and eat the sushi, you know, and he didn't do it. Thank Until, God he thank God he came around. So he came around, but it but you can see you can see that that's like we had this great pork roast at our church. I was thinking, thank God for the new cup. Thank God that Peter came around because man, I'm glad we can have a yeah. pork roast, man. Yeah, and I I do not believe for one moment what many uh, mainstream uh, theological teachers say that okay, well, there's this big division in the early church between the Paul kind of Christianity and the the uh, other apostolic, James kind of Christian. I don't believe that at all. Read the New Testament. They come together, but it is a process. There yeah. is a development in the New Testament as the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem to the eschatos nation, the last nation. And in, in that, when he, you know, that's such a big controversy. Who are the true people of God? And the answer is God has utilized Israel to bring about Messiah and given special promises, and now 
the nations are included. This is not replacement theology. This is inclusion theology. And I don't even have to argue that. That's what the text literally says in in Ephesians 2. It says, you were strangers to the covenants of the promise, and now you're brought in. That's straight up. Nations are included in this Abrahamic inheritance by faith through Christ. In my devotions, I read from this lectionary-based devotional called For All the Saints, a prayer book formed by the church, put out by a group of sort of... um, confessional Lutherans and it has the daily lectionary readings in it. The all the old Testament epistle and gospel. And then it always has a fourth reading from some church figure. Like it could be Tertullian, Augustine, Dorothy day, CS Lewis, Martin Luther King. I mean, it's very, you know, so this today's was from Martin Luther and it, they didn't attribute it, but where it was from, but this is the quote, which I thought, wow, this kind of goes with the caution. So God is invisible, inscrutable, incomprehensible, and so on. Give up all such speculating, which is utterly unrelated to the word of God anyhow. God is saying to you, from the unrevealed God, I shall become your own revealed God. I shall incarnate my own beloved son. This is my beloved son. You hear him. Behold his death, his cross, his passion. See him hang on his mother's breast and hang on the cross. What Christ says and does, you may be sure of. No man cometh to the Father but by me. He has, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. What God is saying to you is this, here is in Christ you have me, here in Christ you will see me. If you want to escape from despair and hatred of God, let speculation go. Begin with God from the bottom upwards, not from the top downwards. In other words, begin with Christ incarnate and with your own terrible original sin. There's no other way. Otherwise, you will remain a doubter for the rest of your life. At all costs, cling to the revealed God. Allow no one to take the child Jesus from you. Hold fast to Christ and you will never be lost. God the Father longs for you. God the Son wishes to be your Savior, your liberator. In this kind and lovely manner has God freed us from these terrible assaults and trials. Hmm. Well, let me let me just repent of something. Up yeah. Here. So, you know, I made a big deal about inheritance and that sort of thing, and that is true in the text. But the main thing about the text of Colossians is Jesus. Right. <laughs> and, 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 so and I don't want to get lost on the other details. It's about who he is and and, and this, this, I like what Luther's saying. It's he's, it's the image of the invisible God, like the things that we, he's made himself visible. And so the keys to the mysteries of the universe aren't speculation. They're not through general speculation, but through particular revelation, the mysteries of the universe are revealed. Good transitional opportunity here to go to yeah. the gospel. Speaking of Jesus here, uh, Luke 23, this is such a great Christ the King text, right? Here is, is Luke 23, 33 through 43, where we have Luke's account of the crucifixion. When they come to the place called the skull, he's crucified uh, there with these criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And there, there's lots of cast to divide his clothing and the people stand watching and there's mocking, and and the two thieves have two different responses. One sort of joins in the derision, and the other recognizes Christ is king and the yes. Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, you know, we have uh, a, you know, a liturgical service, and you know, we're not charismatic and so forth, but I'll tell you that the times when it seems like 
the Spirit of God overwhelms my congregation with emotion is when our very meek and uh, <laughs> uh, not a forceful guy, he's a deacon, he reads the gospel lesson. And f- we've had this happen a number of times where he cannot read it. It's it's so powerful. It just wells up with emotion. And everyone in the congregation, and I can tell you what's going to happen on Sunday as we read this, that's... I'm. I would be surprised if it's uh, just a simple, you know, reading of the text because it's so powerful. It reminds me of an old bluegrass song, uh, probably one of those Appalachian songs from around the turn of the century. Uh, Three men on the mountain, up on Calvary, the man in the middle was Jesus. He died for you and me. Well, the man on the left was a sinner tied to the cross he bled. Have you? He might have been forgiven, but he mocked the Lord instead. You say you are the son of God. They've nailed you to a tree. Come down, come down and save us if God your father be. Well, the man on the right was a sinner, but he was sorry for his sins. He begged the Lord's forgiveness, and Jesus said to him, Fear not, fear not this earthly death. Before this day is o'er, you'll be with me in paradise on heaven's golden shore. Amen. Amen. It's interesting, too, that Luke, it seems like Jesus' identification with sinners gets more intense the closer he gets to the cross. It's now just not undifferentiated crowds. You get prostitutes, tax collectors. And now, I mean, the Greek here for Luke is kagorgos, right? Or like it's, it's criminal, but it could be evildoer, not just robbers like in Matthew, Mark. I mean, it's, it, it seems that the, the closer Jesus gets to the cross, the more he identifies with sin and with sinners. And so it's this, the one who eats with sinners and fellowships with sinners doesn't change that practice, even as he's got the evildoer on the cross with him. He identifies with him. Yeah. Well, something I did a few months ago, I, I don't know if you've ever had this question, like, how did they construct the cross? What exactly were they doing joinery, you know, and, and putting one beam into in the other? I mean, the way we the way we picture crosses in churches is it takes fine cabinetry to make right, these right, two right, pieces right, right. of wood go together. Right. It's very unlikely that the Romans were doing fine cabinetry making crosses. So I, I was thinking, how did it work? And there's an old 19th century idea that the cross was just a pole that didn't have a cross beam and all that. But but here's here's the truth. I, I, I searched it all down to find this out. I was curious, like, how did they make crosses? And here's what they did. So they had a pole in the ground. They had a, you know, picture like a, a large fence post kind of thing in the ground already in the places where they would crucify people frequently. So what they did is they had the cross beam that Jesus carried on the way to the cross, and then they placed it on top of the pole and fastened it down. Hmm. And then frequently they would put something above the person's head. We know this is a case in Luke. Right. So you'd have a stick essentially that would go up behind the person's head and that stick would have, you know, in this case, we have the king of the Jews sign. So it did look like a cross. It wasn't, uh, you know, just a pole or a stake, but the way it worked was that cross beam, they would fasten the person to it. In the case of Jesus, we know that it was by nails and then Roman soldiers would lift it up maybe seven feet, 
something like that. It wasn't super high up because just imagine Roman soldiers are not going to get ladders to crawl up things and go up They're and busy down. They're guys. <laughs> yeah. A lot, lot, lot of... Uh, lot, lot of uh, uh, you know, rabble rousers to deal with. But what they're doing is they're just lifting, just imagine two Roman soldiers taking Jesus that's been nailed to the cross and lifting up that pole and just dropping it on the top of the stake in the ground. That's what they did to Jesus, almost certainly. Now, you know, there can be variations, but that's very like The Son of Man will be lifted up. They lifted him up and then they... I can imagine just dropping it and then imagine the agony that comes with that. And then there are these other criminals around that uh, we have this conversation, the three men on the mountain. There's this uh, Frank Lake, this Christian psychiatrist, who's a blessed memory. Now, he died in the early 80s, but he wrote this thousand page tomb called Clinical Theology. Where he's trying to integrate pastoral care, theology and psychiatry. But he has this amazing passage on the thief on the cross. He says, on a number of occasions with patients and often with clergy trying to help others in this total darkness and complete inertia of what he calls the schizoid breakdown, I have been reduced to this illustration of what faith can still mean at such a time. When every response which clergy ordinarily look for in the faithful is not only impossible but meaningless. I have suggested that there is now so little power left to do anything and no light left to do it in, that the afflicted person is in the position of one of the two thieves crucified on either side of Christ. No significant action or sign is possible to them. No movement of limb can express faith or duty. The voice is too weak and the mouth too dry to speak. Not yet dead, there is little time left, and total darkness has descended. God has, from the sound of things, deserted his own son, as he certainly seems to have deserted you. You are in the same final agony, crucified through weakness. How can he who knows all hearts discern between the responsive and the impenitent thief? While you could speak to him, you did. Now you cannot. What sign can now differentiate between the dying malefactors? Perhaps only this, that one of them still attached supreme significance to the godlike man between them who had prayed for his enemies as they nailed him down. The only way to express the difference is that this one dying thief keeps his eyes while he can on the place where Jesus was last seen and last heard to speak. All his hope, such it is, is in him. And when there is none, still the same intention remains. The other thief finds the central figure irrelevant and turns no expectant gaze upon him. Which are you? Nothing more is required for a perfect act of faith than this apparently useless waiting gaze in the darkness. Which man's act do you follow? I like to say this, too. I just love that, but I... I this line from an old preacher I heard many years ago, he said, there's only one deathbed conversion in the Bible that no one may presume. And there's only one deathbed conversion in the Bible that no one may despair. Yeah. And I love that image of like when, when you're in the dark night of the soul, that, that this seemingly meaningless faith, just cling, just looking, fixating and where Jesus you last saw him or, you know, you last heard him speak and pray that that is so powerful uh, for people who are struggling that, that Christ is, you know, the man of sorrows and new struggles. And, and that part of that's not unbelief, but that can be a real act of faith to have this. It, it, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. Yes. Amen. In Christ, the King. Amen. Thanks, Greg. Blessings. And I hope your, 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 your Hornets problem is solved. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Greg Strawbridge for being my guest today. And thanks again to you all for listening. Until next time, fare the 